these are tough times for people. So this organization is well positioned to rise to the occasion, to offer the resources that I know are needed. I mean, there aren't even enough mental health professionals to keep up with the demand. So ACA is also focused on workforce and what does that look like in the future to make sure we have enough people. is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be an Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Sean Boynes, CEO of the American Counseling Association, or the ACA. Hey, Sean, welcome to the show. Hello, Joanna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. Well, me too. Sean, let's start by having you tell us about ACA. Sure. ACA is the largest professional organization representing licensed professional counselors and students studying to become counselors. And we provide them with many of the same resources that associations provide members, access to continuing education programs, annual conference. We have a magazine. We have a podcast. We provide them with networking opportunities virtually and in person. And we are their go-to resource for anything related to counseling. You know, Sean, I had an opportunity to work on a project for you all many years ago, and it was related to a website redesign. And we interviewed a whole bunch of your members. And it was interesting how many of them said that they became members because their faculty advisor told them to. Yeah, that's where it starts. So you have that kind of influence, right? Yeah. So Sean, you're a national organization. Tell us a little bit about where you are and some of your signature benefits. Sure. ACA is based in Alexandria, Virginia, which is where we have our staff office. We are working in a hybrid environment like most associations, so staff really aren't coming in, but we're spread throughout the U.S. We have a staff person in Hawaii. We have a person in Georgia. We have a person in Florida. So we're well represented throughout the United States. And I would say ACA, the value proposition is you have counselors creating resources for other counselors. So it's for counselors by counselors. So they are getting the best of the best. And we are fortunate in having six counselors on staff here in the organization. So they have their finger on the pulse of what's happening in the profession and can provide that insight for staff that aren't counselors to create the best resources possible. Now, Sean, that's actually impressive because I know many associations don't often have subject matter experts on staff, but you all have made the decision to do that. Is that because the content really has to be vetted carefully? I think it's a couple of things. It's that, but then I think there was also a request for membership that they wanted to have 
counselors represented at the staff level, recognizing that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of creating the resources. And as you know, working with volunteers, sometimes it just takes a much longer time to get people together to create the stuff. And having counselors on staff provides us with, I would say, one step ahead of where many organizations are by not having subject matter experts on the staff team. And Sean, the ACA has a code of ethics. And I know that that's really important. How important is that to the profession, to distinguishing your members, for example? It's incredibly important. And it's something that we're actually getting ready to review. It's supposed to be reviewed every 10 years or so. So we are kind of at that point. And it's a very involved process. It takes about a couple of years to review. And if there are revisions that are needed because of the changing external environment, those codes of ethics gets updated. But it's what everyone kind of adheres to by being a member of this organization. And even if they're not, it's kind of what they adhere to to be a respected counselor in this profession. And this is important because to be a counselor, you're licensed at the state level. Yes. But the Code of Ethics is an ACA set of standards. Correct. And it's based on feedback and best practice in the profession. We want to make sure that we are not only protecting counselors, but that we are protecting the clients that they work with as well. Hey, before we get into the things that are helping ACA thrive, tell us about your journey to becoming CEO of ACA. It has been an amazing career journey. I've worked in association management for 28 years. Congratulations. Thank you. And ACA is my seventh association. So in that time period, I've been fortunate to work with a couple of legal associations. I've worked in the healthcare space with the nursing organization. And prior to this, I worked for a scientific organization. And I, I've joked with current ACA volunteer leaders by saying, you know, I moved from body to mind by working <laughs> now with counselors. And, you know, it all kind of prepared me for this moment. And this is the right organization the right time, not just for me, but in history and how the world is focused on mental health as a result of everything that's happened related to the pandemic. And just these are tough times for people. So this organization is well positioned to rise to the occasion to offer the resources that I know are needed. I mean, there aren't even enough mental health professionals to keep up with the demand. So ACA is also focused on workforce and what does that look like in the future to make sure we have enough people. Oh my God, Sean, almost every guest I have on this show talks about workforce development. Mm -hmm. I don't know where we're going to find all these people. I know. It's a challenge that regardless of profession, we're all struggling with. And until we figure that out, it's going to be tough trying to prepare too far in advance because you just don't know what the next two, three years will look like, but we got to get that one figured out. So in the end, why did you decide to take this position? Because you'd been CEO of other associations before. Yeah, I served as the executive director for the American Association for Anatomy for nine years and was happy there and was proud of the work that I accomplished with the volunteer leaders and, and the staff team. And this opportunity came my way and I was ready for something different. And mental health has impacted me personally. My mother suffered from a mental illness and I got excited about leading an organization that I knew I would have an opportunity to 
have an impact on mental health, especially in the Black community, where we're still not talking about it as much as we probably should and kind of dealing with it. It's getting better, but we still have a long way to go. And to be in a position where I can influence that made it feel as though this was my purpose. Like I felt like I fell into my purpose-driven career opportunity at this time. And everything I've done before prepared me for this moment, you know, working with a broad variety of professionals and having experiences in different senior leadership roles and making mistakes along the way and understanding the importance of being intentional with everything that you do. And you can't do it alone. You have to have great volunteer leaders that you're partnering with a good staff team. You got to have a network for yourself because in these roles, it's lonely at the top. So if you don't have people that you can reach out to for support and guidance, it can be a very difficult journey. Sean, you are taking over from Rich Yep, who was CEO for 26 years. Mm -hmm. He was a longtime CEO, beloved, quite prominent in the association space. You've got a name for yourself. But what's it like to step into the shoes of a long time exec like that? Like, how do you honor the legacy while charting your own path? Because presumably the board is saying, look, we're bringing you in to take us to the next level. Yeah. What's that like? I think you've kind of touched on it already. You know, my approach has been acknowledging the past, celebrating the present, because certainly the organization has come a long way from where it's been. And that is because of Rich's former leadership And then preparing for the future. And that's my leadership and what we'll do together going forward and preparing for the changes that we need to make to strengthen the organization, seize opportunities that the organization may not have seen previously, and making sure that we are laying the groundwork for a much stronger future for those that will enter the profession, for staff, for others that probably don't know about counseling as a profession and how do we elevate that profile? Hmm. So I view it as a significant opportunity to pick up that baton and run it forward because we have a lot of work to do. And now's the time for us to, as I said before, rise to the occasion. Hey, Sean, speaking of mental health, and thank you for sharing that. I'm talking to you as an association exec. You're also a Black CEO of a mental health association. When a tragedy like the Tyree Nichols death happens, Mm -hmm. how do you react to that? And how do you support your network? And what's the leadership journey for someone like you? It's, It's a tough time. Thank you for that powerful question. Unfortunately, I've been through this before in 2020 with everything that unfolded around the murder of George Floyd. I had to wrestle with a lot of personal stuff and being in a leadership role. It's not always easy to be vulnerable, but we all have to learn how to be a little more empathetic and how do we provide space for others that are experiencing things to feel as though they're seen and they're heard. So when the most recent incident happened, unfortunately, again, I took a step back and assessed where I was emotionally, where I was mentally, Mm. and showed up to work on a Monday and used that as an opportunity to communicate with my staff team that I was traumatized by the event. It was disturbing to me. And as the CEO of this organization and as a Black man, You know, it's been difficult, but I wanted to also convey to the staff team that we can make space 
to have this conversation. If anybody wanted to do that, I would absolutely make the space for it. And if people didn't feel comfortable doing it collectively as a staff team, then they can contact me directly and we can do it privately. And I did that because I wanted to acknowledge that, yes, this is a thing. And yes, we need to take care of ourselves. And I encourage people to do that. And because we are a mental health organization, it's important for me to not only say it, but to model it and to demonstrate it. And I received a lot of responses from the staff team thanking me for at least acknowledging it at minimum and helping people understand that these are challenging times. And you can't always separate your personal life from the work life in moments like this because it is so in your face and you have to deal with it. So for me, it was being vulnerable, showing up, letting people know that, yeah, this is challenging for me too, and helping people figure out what they need to do to work through it themselves. And Sean, this has to be a challenging time for your members. You probably have a surge in counseling requests around the country, but especially in the communities where these shootings have happened recently. Yeah. So my God, how do you create a place where you can support your members and take care of them because they're taking care of their communities? Yeah. And that's the other side of things that I don't think a lot of people think about for all of these horrible situations that happen. There's the other side of who's taking care of the people who are traumatized by it all. And certainly counselors tend to be, you know, on the front lines of that. But then no one's asking who's taking care of the counselors. Right. Because they give and they are sponges in absorbing everyone else's grief and pain. And that takes a toll. And burnout happens. And we have to pay closer attention to just wellness for counselors. In April is Counselor Appreciation Month. So one of the things that the current president of the association is focused on is wellness. So we are mapping out an entire campaign for this year's Counselor Appreciation Month that's focused on wellness and providing members with resources to help them take care of themselves, whether or not it's working out, whether or not it's meditation, whether or not it's just walking, but doing something where they pause and focus on self. Because if not, you just can't keep going, going, going without having the pressure of just carrying everybody else's burdens and not being able to process through that yourself. Wow. Hey, let's talk about the things that ACA is doing to thrive. Because it sounds like you're at the nexus of a whole lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Talk to us about something that you've been working on for a while called the Interstate Counseling Compact. And this sounds important. The Counseling Compact is huge for the profession. And to try to break this down into layman's terms so people understand, like most professions, counselors have to be licensed in the state where they practice. The challenge is you cannot practice where you're not licensed. So whether you move or your spouse or partner has to go to another state for a job and you go with them, you can't practice in that state unless you are licensed. The other part is if you have clients that you are working with, you can no longer service those clients because you are, if you will, working across state lines. 
Oh, so like if I move, but my patients say, hey, can I still keep seeing you? Can we do Zoom calls? I can't do it because I'm licensed in Georgia and I'm now in Colorado. Right. Ah. It's complicated and every state has different licensing requirements for counselors. And what the Counseling Compact will do when all 50 states sign on to it, it will allow counselors to practice in other states where they may not have their primary license. So right now we have 17 states that have signed on to the compact and we have 10 other states that will be introducing legislation. So we're making progress, but we still have a long way to go. And if you think about it from this perspective, there aren't enough counselors, even just mental health professionals, broadly speaking, to keep up with the demand just because of all of the mental health. I mean, we're in a crisis the mental health challenges that we have in this country and even globally, this will provide people with access to more counselors and will make it a little easier for people to service clients, whether they are in the state where the client is or in a different state. That's going to be huge for counselors and for people who need mental health services. Sean, this sounds like a ginormous effort. It is. Because you're working with state legislatures. This isn't, I mean, it's hard enough working with Capitol Hill. Now you're working with all 50 state legislatures. Yep. And we have, I I made a staffing decision. We now have a dedicated staff person that is focused on the counseling compact. Ah. That is her primary responsibility. And in collaboration with our government affairs and public policy team will be dedicating time and energy and resources to not only advancing the compact, but providing members with the resources that they need to understand it. You know, as a national organization, we don't have the ability to go into every state and kind of introduce legislation. So we work with our branches, and these are all of the state counseling associations, to provide them with the guidance that they need to introduce legislation and get sponsors and people behind it so that it can become a reality. So it's a lot of moving parts and pieces to this compact, but it's something that the board has allocated financial resources to. We had to create a commission that will be the primary body that's kind of overseeing the compact. And of course, ACA has a representative on this commission. But then recognizing that it's going to take staff time, it's going to take volunteer time, it's going to take financial resources, we're all in because it's important and it's going to have a huge impact for this profession in the long term. Right. Hey, and speaking of resources, you do something kind of interesting. You have courses that you sell to members and non-members, but you offer to members a free continuing education course every single month. Yeah. So why do you do that? You're giving away content. I think it's important for associations to recognize that there's always going to be a need, especially for organizations that have members that are licensed somewhere, and you have to have a certain number of continuing education hours or credits, however you want to refer to them, to renew your license, whatever that time period is. And especially during the pandemic, where people didn't have the opportunity to go to in-person conferences and meetings. It was an opportunity for ACA to kind of provide access to CE to help members stay abreast of what was happening and also to ensure that they were going to be able to have enough CE to renew their licenses. And that just kind of continued. And it's a value-added member benefit, if you will. 
one free a month. If you did nothing else, you get 12 free CEs a year if you participated in every single one. So it's a way to demonstrate value and allow members that opportunity, regardless of their financial situation, to benefit from education that is created for them by them. Ah, interesting. So tremendous value, even for members that maybe feel strapped. Yeah. Because everyone's feeling strapped. And you also become the home for everything. Yeah, hopefully. Because of the journals, the code of ethics, the courses, the CEs, everything. Yeah. Hey, Sean, before we close out, I want to talk to you about something. You say that you're a governance geek. Yeah. (laughs) So what does that mean? I love governance and my association colleagues will probably chuckle at that because I don't know too many people who love governance. (laughs) I look at it this way, though, you know, going back to my days leading the anatomy association, governance is sort of like the central nervous system of an organization. If you don't have governance figured out or if you don't get governance right, everything else is just not going to work the way it should work. We're in the middle of a major governance assessment to figure out how to make it better so that we can be a more effective organization with a governing body that is nimble, makes the right decisions, and advances the profession. And we got to get that right, because if we don't get that right, we're going to continue to stumble. And like most organizations, you know, you have bylaws that haven't been reviewed or revised in many, many, many years. And if you think about what's happened over the past couple of years, organizations are in a different place and we're having to define that value differently. You know, people may not necessarily have the time commitment to serve on a board or volunteer on a committee. So does that mean that we don't provide other opportunities for people to engage with the association? Ah. How do we make space for next generation leaders to get leadership experience by serving on committees or task forces and making sure that we're inclusive? You can't have the same people constantly serving in the same roles because get what you get by doing it that way. And one of the things that is my mantra, you can't keep doing the same thing, expecting different results, right? It just doesn't happen. So where do we need to change? In many instances, it goes back to governance. And governance is challenging because people are emotionally connected to organizations and they experience it. You know, if they join the organization as a student and now they're serving on the board after many, many, many years, well, they know the organization as they experienced it. And when you start tinkering and changing things, it feels as though you're taking something away from them. Ah. And you're really not. It's, okay, we need to evolve. We need to think about how we need to be different. How are we preparing for next generation leadership that's going to be very different because they've experienced their careers and the world in a way that their predecessors may not have. So it's challenging because there's a lot of finessing that needs to happen. And you have to give people the space and the opportunity to share their thoughts and provide their input into whatever this new governance structure may look like for the organization. So that's why I'm a governance geek, because yes, it can be brutal. And, you know, I have some scars from previous experiences working with boards trying to change governance and structures. But when you get it right, it's pretty awesome. You can do amazing things. And it sounds like you relish it. Yeah, because again, without good governance, I don't care how much money an organization has. I don't care 
how important the organization may think it is, governance will stall you yeah, and prevent you from realizing true greatness if you don't get it right. And that means making some tough decisions sometimes. And Sean, I can't tell you how many guests on Associations Thrive talk about how governance fuels their success. Mm-hmm. So good luck. And I hope that you will come back and report on the changes that have taken place. I would love the opportunity to come back and report out on successes. I'm an optimist, so I'm going to stay optimistic and hopefully have a great story to share with you the next time. Excellent. Thank you, Joanna. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye! Bye!